She fought her executioner, bloodying his face and ran for the tree line, but she wasn't faster than his bullets. Bobby Joe Oberholzer's body would be found on a snowbank the next day, ten miles outside Breckenridge, Colorado. Six months later, the body of Annette Schnee was also found, ten miles south of Bobby Joe's body, in a desolate area, laying face down in a stream. She, too, had been shot as she ran. The mysterious circumstances that bound these two young women together would haunt their families and investigators for years, but DNA evidence would finally bring justice. Welcome to Twisted Travel and True Crime. This is the 100th episode of this podcast. I appreciate each and every one of you for listening and coming along on this adventure with me. Let's get started. In the very early morning hours of January 7, 1982, Jeff Oberholzer called police to let them know his 30-year-old wife, Bobby Joe, was missing. His call came in at 3.30 in the morning, but she'd been missing for hours by then. Earlier that day, she had called her husband to let him know that she was going to go out to drinks with friends and that she'd catch a ride home with them. By midnight, Bobby Joe hadn't come home, and Jeff was very worried. He drove to the home of Bobby Joe's co-workers and woke them up. He wanted to know where she was, but her friends had no idea. She'd left long before they did. She'd decided to hitch a ride home, which was something she did all the time. It was the early 80s, after all, and hitchhiking was commonplace. Jeff decided that his next move was to drive to the police station for help. The police, true to course, told him that it was too early to file a missing persons report, especially for an adult woman. So Jeff decided to drive back home, just in case Bobby Joe had arrived while he was out looking for her. She hadn't. The next morning at 8 a.m., a rancher called Jeff to let him know that he had just found Bobby Joe's driver's license on the edge of his property. When Jeff drove to the location, he found his wife's blue backpack. Near the backpack was his wife's gloves. They were covered in blood. A bloody tissue also lay in the snow, but Bobby Joe wasn't there. It seemed to him as though the items had been tossed from a moving vehicle. His heart sank to his feet in that moment. After gathering his composure, he went into full search mode. He rounded up friends and family, and with their help, a cross-country ski search and rescue began. The winter of 1982 was a very snowy one. The snow banks were piled high along Highway 9, creating a narrow canyon of sorts. It was difficult to see over the tops of the plowed canyons, so the searchers had taken to wearing skis in order to traverse the roadsides. Unfortunately, within a very short period of time, the skiers found what they were hoping they wouldn't. It was the body of Bobby Joe, laying face down in a snowbank, about twenty feet off the southbound side of the freshly plowed highway. This was somewhere between the city of Breckenridge, where she worked, and her home in Alma. Her body was only 300 yards south of the Hoosier Pass Summit parking lot. Although she was fairly far from the roadside, her body had been hidden by passers-by because the plow trucks had been working all night and the snow piles were so high that many of the speed signposts were completely covered. Bobby Joe was fully clothed and frozen solid. It was Jeff's best man, at he and his wife's wedding, that had to break the news to Jeff that Bobby Joe had died. According to the first witnesses, it wasn't obvious as to what killed Bobby Joe. They thought perhaps she'd been hit by a car. There were no obvious wounds, but there was blood. 
After police arrived on the scene, it became evident that Bobby Joe had been shot in the chest and left to die. When they examined her body, they found that one hand had been zip-tied. They placed her body in a bag, and Jeff, who had just arrived on the scene, begged the police to let him see her. They did, and his world came crashing down. His life from that day forward was forever changed for the worse. He was asked if he had any idea who would do this to his wife. He didn't, but the next day he would be told that he was the number one suspect in his wife's murder. As the search for evidence proceeded, a brass ring with a hook was found in the Hoosier Pass parking lot. It was Bobby Joe's. The next day, another family member would get some terrible news about another young Breckenridge local. Annette Schnee's mother received a phone call that most mothers feared. It was one of her daughter's roommates telling her that Annette, age 21, hadn't come home on the night of the 6th. Even more telling was that the typically reliable Annette hadn't shown up for work on the 7th either. It was now the 8th. Her roommates had called the police, and now Annette's mother, already in tears, called them too. All they could tell her was that Annette had vanished. Her family jumped into action and made their way to Colorado from Sioux City, Iowa. That same week, local media would print an article about Bobby Joe. It read like this. The body of a missing woman has been found near the summit of Hoosier Pass in Park County, Sheriff Norman Howey says. The death of Barbara J. Oberholzer is being investigated as a possible homicide. The cause of death wasn't determined pending an autopsy. The woman's fully clothed body was found Thursday afternoon in snow along Colorado 9 by a cross-country skiers, officials said. Miss Oberholzer was reported missing after she failed to return to her home in Alma Wednesday night from her job in Breckenridge. The short blurb didn't attract much attention, but that would come months later. What the media ran with that day was an article right next to Bobby Joe's, one that would get national attention. That headline read, Airliner Gets SOS from Stuck Trucker. According to this article, a man named Al Phillips was unable to dig his small pickup truck out of a snowbank he'd sank into on a mountain pass, 40 miles west of Denver. It was dangerously cold, and he would knew he'd freeze if he didn't get help, so he decided he would try flashing an SOS signal with his headlights when he heard a plane passing overhead. A passenger was looking out the window, and saw the signal resulting in an amazing rescue. Other media outlets found this rescue fascinating and delved deeper into the story, explaining that late on the evening of January 6th into the early morning hours of the 7th, a sheriff's deputy named Harold Bray was flying out on a United Airlines flight from Denver to San Francisco. His plane was just taking off, rising up over the Rockies, and he was looking out his window as the plane passed over the Granella Pass. The night was clear enough at the time that he could see lights flashing from the top of the nearly 12,000-foot pass. He thought it was strange, because the pass was closed for the season. It was much too treacherous and impassable to drive, but someone was up there, and they were flashing their headlights. Then he noticed the headlights were flashing in a pattern. There were three short flashes, then three long flashes, then three short flashes. This was an SOS signal. SOS was a Morse code distress signal used in the early 1900s to call for help. It was often used in maritime situations and became associated with the phrase, Save Our Ship, 
and later save our souls. The sheriff's deputy identified the call for help and told the pilot what he'd seen. The pilot radioed the flight tower, letting them know that someone needed help up on the mountain. It ended up being such a big story that the United Press International wrote an article about it. Alan Phillips was rescued after his pickup truck plowed into a snowdrift. He'd been visiting friends in Colorado and was driving home when his truck became stuck in the snow. He tried unsuccessfully to dig it out and thought about walking for help, but decided that walking in 20 degree below zero weather would be a deadly decision. The report to the Federal Aviation Administration Center was forwarded to the local Clear Creek County Sheriff's Office, who sent out two vehicles to rescue Phillips. As the local fire chief, David Montoya, made his way up the treacherous pass, he soon found the pickup truck stuck in the snowdrift. He was quoted as saying, Sure as heck, there he was in his little pickup. The driver said that driving over the pass seemed like a good idea at the time, but clearly it wasn't. It was an incredible stroke of luck that an airplane happened to be flying overhead to see the SOS. It's possible that because of this crazy story, some of the media's attention was taken away from Bobby Joe Oberholzer's murder and the missing woman, Annette Schnee, but their attention would come back to the women a few months later. In July of 1982, seven months after Annette Schnee was reported missing by her roommate and mother, a young man was fishing in Sacramento Creek. He was 13 years old when he stumbled across Annette's body. She was fully dressed, face down in the creek, and she'd been shot once in the back. This time, it didn't take the media long to grab hold of the story. The headlines blared, because there had been a link found between the murder of Bobby Joe and Annette. The similarities between the murders were glaring. They were both young female hitchhikers, and they even looked alike. They were both small and thin, around a hundred pounds, and blonde. They were dumped within ten miles of each other. Both of them had to travel the same direction to get where they wanted to go. They had both been shot by what was believed to be the same type of gun, a thirty-eight, three-fifty-seven, or nine-millimeter handgun. It was possible that the two women were killed by the same person, possibly even on the same day. Police wondered if they knew each other. Could they have been together? There was certainly reason to believe so. The biggest reason was that a single orange sock was found at both crime scenes. I'll come back to that in a few minutes. So let's back up a bit and talk about the women and what they did on the day they both disappeared. Bobby Joe grew up in Wisconsin, but she and her husband Jeff moved to, together to Colorado. Bobby Joe was free-spirited, a happy hippie, and her husband Jeff fell head over heels for her. They dated for several years before tying the knot in 1977, when Jeff was 23 and Bobby Joe was 26. Five years later, Jeff ran an appliance repair business, and Bobby Joe was a receptionist at a real estate office. She had a daughter from a previous relationship, but her daughter lived in Wisconsin with her father. The day Bobby Joe disappeared, she and Jeff got up together, bright and early at 5.30 in the morning. Jeff, who had a truck, needed to use it for his work as a handyman, so Bobby Joe had to hitchhike to her job, which she didn't mind. But Jeff didn't like it. He felt the trouble could just be one ride away, so he gave Bobby Joe a weapon. It was a very large brass clip, similar to a carabiner, 
with a brass ring attached to it. He said she could use it to defend herself if needed. On a typical workday, Bobby Joe would leave the house at 7.15 and hoped that someone would pull over and pick her up. She was well known by many of the locals and was often offered rides by people she knew. It wasn't considered strange at the time because many people made their way around town the same way. That day, she worked from 8.30 to 5, and afterwards, she headed to a local pub to have drinks with a couple of colleagues. They were celebrating Bobby Joe's recent promotion to office manager. Bobby Joe tried to call her husband from the pub's payphone, but he didn't answer. Later, when she tried again at 6.20, she was able to reach him, and she told him that she'd be catching a ride home with her friends. She wasn't driving, so she was free to imbibe and having great taste in cocktails, she chose rum and cokes. After three of them, she decided she wanted to go home, but her friends weren't ready to leave. Bobby Joe was impatient, and she decided she'd hitch a ride home rather than stay and wait. She probably wasn't thinking of the frigid weather, but when she stepped outside and the cold hit her, she may have been less selective about who she caught a ride with. She generally had a rule. She wouldn't get in a vehicle with more than one person in it and her second rule was she'd never get in a van. She was seen exiting the bar right around 7.30. Then she walked about 100 yards down the road to a parking area locally referred to as Hitchhiker's Corner. On any given day, 50 or more hitchhikers would wait there for rides, but on this cold night, she was alone. A local man pulled over and offered her a ride south, but he wasn't going all the way to Alma, where she lived so she passed on his offer. This man remembered seeing only one other vehicle out on the roads that night, so Bobby Joe truly didn't have many choices. When her body was found the next day, police found evidence of a scuffle in the parking lot. It seemed that Bobby Joe had made a run for the nearest tree line. She'd been shot once in the chest and had a second grazing wound across her right breast. She was fully dressed and was found wearing white socks on both her feet. Her body was located about 300 feet from the parking lot, which was where her brass ring was found, as well as a crumpled orange sock, which was weird, and at the time, the police thought it might have been unrelated to the murder. Annette Schnee, whose body was found months after Bobby Joe's had been found, had held two jobs when alive. She was a housekeeper by day for the local Holiday Inn, and a waitress at night. As police investigated her disappearance, they learned that she disappeared the same day that Bobby Joe had. She had left work at the Holiday Inn at 3.30 because she wasn't feeling well. She left there and went to the Frisco Medical Center, where she had an internal exam, and then she hitched a ride to Breckenridge. Once in Breckenridge, she stopped at a local pharmacy where she had a prescription filled. The record showed that this happened at 4.30. When police spoke with the pharmacist, he remembered that Annette had a woman with her and that Annette was reminding her to buy some Marlboro cigarettes. The two women were seen walking out of the drugstore together. Unfortunately, this woman has never been identified, despite police inquiries and a composite sketch being made. When her body was found in July, Annette was found at the end of a dead-end road in a very desolate area. There were no houses for miles. It was an area where there would be no witnesses. It would have been dark the night she was killed, possibly snowing, and again, very cold. Her body was lying partially submerged in an ice-cold stream 
and partially on a bank. It had been pushed up against a willow tree, and had only recently thawed, so her body was fairly well preserved. She had been shot once in the back. Her cause of death was from blood loss and hypothermia. The bullet was never recovered, but the gunshot wound was consistent with the wounds on Bobby Joe. This was significant because a thirty-eight caliber bullet jacket had been found inside Bobby Joe's body. Annette was fully clothed, but it appeared as if she had been redressed or dressed in haste. This was because she was wearing mismatched socks, and her boots were on the wrong feet. But here's where it gets really weird, and it also ties these women together. Annette was wearing one long striped sock and one smaller orange sock. It appeared similar to the sock found in the parking lot near where Bobby Joe's body was found, but that was over 20 miles away. Upon closer inspection, the orange socks, one found at each crime scene, appeared to be two parts of a matching pair. Annette was wearing a blue sweatshirt, and inside the pocket of her sweatshirt was the other striped sock. Police believed that she was assaulted and then struggled to get dressed in the assailant's car in the dark, or she had been partially undressed and then managed to dress herself and escape. Either way, she didn't have enough time to put both sets of socks on her feet, so she made do with what she was able to grab. At this point, her killer either told her to get out of the car and run, or she managed to escape and run. All we know is that she had her back to her assailant when he shot her. Then she fell into the snow, covering the frozen stream. The orange sock wasn't the only evidence found on Annette's body. In the pocket of her jacket, they found a picture and a business card with a familiar name, Jeff Oberholzer. Police thought they'd start with what was most obvious to them. They believed that Jeff had something to do with Bobby Joe's murder, but they hadn't been able to prove it. Strangely, when Jeff was being questioned about Bobby Joe's disappearance, police would also question him about the disappearance of Annette, since they seemed to have disappeared on the same day, and he was really their only suspect because of his marriage to Bobby Joe. When he was first asked if he knew Annette, he said he didn't know her, but the next day he called police to tell him that he thinks he might have met her after all. He thought he might have given her a ride just a few days earlier when she had been hitchhiking. At some point during his multiple interrogations, Jeff told police when and where he thought Annette's body might be located. When he was asked later why he shared this information with police, he said, I've always had different premonitions in my life. I had told them that I felt she would be found four miles from my house on the 4th of July. To police, this sounded very specific, and when Annette's body was found months later, it made him look really bad. She was actually found on July 3rd, and her body was about seven miles from his house. Things weren't looking good for Jeff. Investigators spent weeks and months pinning down his timeline and trying to figure out how he could have killed the two women. But in the end, he was cleared. Even though he was connected to the two murdered women and had that very strange premonition, the three, Annette's, Bobby Joe's, and Jeff's timelines, just didn't work together. There were no witnesses who saw the two women together. So had one person kidnapped one woman, then immediately turned around, gone back to town to kidnap another, or were there two people involved? Either way, Jeff's whereabouts didn't allow him time to kill Annette. That being said, 
His blood type was the type found on Bobby Joe's gloves and the bloody tissue, but as advances were made with DNA technology, it was discovered that Jeff's DNA was not a match. Over many, many years, several investigators did their best to solve these murders and had persons of interest other than Jeff. They believed that someone local was the killer. This was because of where Annette's body was found, down at the end of a dead-end country road. A foreigner to the area wouldn't have been able to find that spot, and Jeff had told investigators that Bobby Joe wouldn't accept a ride from just anyone, but she would have accepted a ride from someone she knew, someone who was trustworthy and well-intentioned. When Annette was found, there was a photograph in her pocket of a young blonde man with a crew cut. Police wanted to know who he was. His photograph was circulated, but no one came forward claiming to know who he was, at least not until decades later, and he wasn't involved in her murder. He was just a guy she had dated in high school. They sifted through her exes to see if one of them could be involved, but found no leads in that direction either. In 1989, a task force was put together, and a psychological profile was written about the suspect at the time. The profile said that the killer isn't sure he committed the crime, because it appeared as a dream to him, and that he didn't feel good about what he did. The profiler also believed that the killer was carrying a heavy emotional burden, and that he'll feel relieved when he admits the crime. When the police selectively released some of this information, it was pretty obvious that it was an attempt to get the killer to come forward and admit what he had done, but it didn't work, and the investigation stalled. For a short time, serial killer Henry Lee Lucas was a suspect. He confessed to killing hundreds of women while crossing the nation with his lover, Otis Edward Toole, but he too was ruled out by DNA. Eventually, police stumbled into another suspect, one that seemed to be more promising. In 1989, a retired investigator named Charlie McCormick took on the case. He started looking at other crimes in the area that might be a match to Annette's and Bobby Joe's. A pretty smart move. That February, a local taxi driver named Thomas Luther picked up a woman named Mary. He raped her and beat her with a hammer so badly that she almost died. The modus operandi wasn't the same, but the proximity, timing, and sexual motive was similar enough to Bobby Joe's and Annette's cases that he believed there could be a link. Thomas Luther would eventually be convicted of the hammer attack on Mary and served ten years in prison. Upon his release, he abducted a twenty-year-old woman, raped her, and shot her in the back of the head. A month after that attack, he attacked another woman, stabbing her in the back and slashing her neck, but she survived. He would be put back in jail for murder and attempted murder. But while awaiting trial for his first attack on the woman named Mary, he bragged to some inmates about killing two women near Breckenridge, and he claimed that police would never find the other one. This was, of course, before Annette's body was found. When police dug deeper into his case, they found that he had the night off that Bobby, Joe, and Annette disappeared. He also had access to a thirty-eight caliber revolver, because at the time of the women's murders, he was dating a police trainee. He could have taken her gun. He was asked to take a polygraph, and it was inconclusive, so he stayed at the top of the suspect list. When he was officially interrogated, he denied any involvement in Annette or Bobby Joe's death, and unfortunately, 
there wasn't enough evidence to take the case to trial. Once again, no physical evidence could tie Thomas Luther to the murder scene. The blood wasn't a match. Two other killers were considered for the case, but eventually they too were cleared. Nine years after their murders, investigators were still at such a standstill that they decided to cooperate with the producers of Unsolved Mysteries to air an episode about Annette and Bobby Joe. When the story was aired, the episode brought in leads that kept the investigators busy for years, but eventually they too fizzled out. Decades passed before they would be a new investigator and a more scientific path to follow. Forty years had gone by when Detective Sergeant Wendy Kipple said, I think we need to try this new genetic genealogy thing. Maybe it can work for us. She had in her possession the bloody glove and the bloody tissue that was found with Bobby Joe's backpack. There was also a spot of blood on the jacket that she was wearing when she was killed. It was on the sleeve and not in an area where she'd been shot. In 1982, testing showed that the blood on the glove was the same blood type as Bobby Joe's, so they assumed it was hers. In 1994, after many advancements in technology, the samples were tested again, and when the DNA testing was done by a private lab, they said the blood on the glove and on the tissue paper was not Bobby Joe's. This was a huge piece of information for detectives, because they knew at this point that Bobby Joe had hurt her assailant, and that the blood most likely belonged to her killer. Nearly 20 years later, 40 years after the murders, when Detective Wendy Kipple got her hands on the DNA evidence, she knew the time was right. She sent the DNA sample to United Data Connect, a Denver company that runs crime scene DNA profiles through publicly available genealogical databases. On January 9, 2021, she got a phone call from the genealogist who said, I have two names for you, and one of those names turned out to be the killer. There was not one, but two possible matches for the blood found on Bobby Joe's glove and tissue that were recovered back in 1982, and they were brothers, Bruce and Alan Phillips. Does one of those names ring a bell? I know that some of you have just dropped your jaw. According to detectives, Bruce Phillips never lived in Colorado, but his brother, from whom he was estranged, had. When the detectives dug deeper, she discovered that not only had Alan Phillips previously lived just outside Breckenridge, where he worked at a local mine, he still lived nearby and had his own mechanic shop. Alan Phillips was the man who got caught in the snow and was flashing his truck lights at the plane. He was the man rescued in that story at the beginning of this episode. After killing Bobby Joe, he had run for the hills, so to speak, when he crashed into the snowbank and got stuck. Looking back on that night, Dave Montoya, the local fire chief who also worked in the mines, was the man who made his way up to the stranded vehicle and its owner. As he drove up the hill, he thought to himself, this stranded person had to be a tourist. Nobody else would be up there. But once he arrived on the scene, it wasn't a tourist. It was someone he knew, a fellow miner. Alan came running down towards the fire chief, Dave, and says, man, I'm glad to see you. Dave says to Alan, what the hell are you doing out here? And Alan replies, well, I got drunk and I decided to come home. I didn't want to go on the highway because I might get caught, so I went over the pass because the cops ain't there. Dave noticed that Alan had a big cut over his eye. 
When he asked Alan how he got the injury, he said that he hit his face on the truck door. Alan was very stupid, but he was also very lucky. He refused medical treatment and was dropped off near his home. He gave an oral statement to the police about the accident and the local newspaper. They reported on the unusual rescue and had included a photo of Alan. Looking back, Fire Chief Dave said, If I had known then what I know now, I would have left him there. Alan Phillips was never a suspect in the case. By the time he was caught, he had been married three times and had a daughter and two stepsons. When Detective Kippel looked at his criminal history, she knew she had the right man. Alan Lee Phillips had been convicted of assault and burglary in 1973, almost ten years before Bobby Joe and Annette went missing. He served six months behind bars. His signed confession said that on July 3, 1973, his first victim had accepted a car ride for him in Breckenridge. She had known him when she got into his Jeep, and he drove her to an abandoned camp cabin, which wasn't far from where Annette was killed, nine years later. He drove her there under the pretense of dropping off a tool kit to a friend, but once parked at the cabin, he attacked her, beating her severely with a rock. Detective Sergeant Kippel also learned that Alan Phillips' name had come up in connection with the double murder back in 2005 when an anonymous caller called in a tip to Crime Stoppers. Investigators checked it out, but according to Kippel, the lead went cold when the information couldn't be verified. So now she knew who the killer was, and there was only one thing left to do. They needed a definitive sample of Alan Phillips' DNA. So they secretly began surveilling him and it turned out that getting a sample of his DNA wasn't easy. He wouldn't throw things away, not even his garbage. Maybe he burnt it in his backyard. He lived like a hermit, staying at home and rarely interacting with people, but finally, after five weeks of surveillance, Phillips finally left his home and went to a sonic drive-in. The police were watching him and waiting. But weirdly, after he got done eating, he took his trash with him. So Kippel and her team followed him as he drove to a local post office. He walked inside, carrying the sonic bag, but on his way out, he was only holding mail. The second he pulled out of the parking lot, the investigators ran inside to recover the remains of his lunch. He had dumped it into a box, labeled mail only, and it was the only trash in the box. The bag was taken to a lab, where Philip's DNA was pulled from saliva on the napkin. The results were definitive. It was Alan Phillips' blood that was on Bobby Joe's glove and that napkin. By the end of February 2021, Alan Phillips was arrested. Detective Kippel said the look of shock on his face was priceless. Once in police custody, he refused to talk. The only words he said were, I didn't murder anybody and I'm not talking. He was charged with two counts of murder after deliberation two counts of kidnapping, and two counts of first-degree assault with a deadly weapon. After he was arrested, the police held a press conference. Jeff Oberholzer would speak, and he would say, I pray that the arrest of Alan Phillips for the murder of my wife, Bobby Joe and Annette Schnee, will finally, after all these decades, bring closure and peace to this hideous nightmare for myself, along with all the lives he has horribly affected by his actions. I cannot thank enough all who never gave up the search for the truth. 
Later, the media would interview Annette's 88-year-old mother, who said, You know, I thought there'd be no closure. I thought maybe I'd be gone before I had closure to this case. I'm ready to go when it's my time now. As for Alan Phillips, he was 30 years old at the time of the murders, and when arrested, he was approaching 70. He was born in 1851 in Cadillac, Michigan. His family moved to South Bend, Indiana for a time, then on to Texas, where his mother's family lived. He and his brothers attended Snyder High in Scurry, and then he would graduate from the Oklahoma Military Academy in 1970. His first marriage was in 1971, and she would divorce him in 1973 because he was abusive. He'd marry again in 78, but that didn't last long either, as he divorced sometime in 81. He must have been angry at that time, because it was just the first week of 1982 when he killed Bobby Joe and Annette. When he went to trial, the prosecuting team thought they had a slam dunk, but the defense team had a plan. They questioned the validity of the DNA and other evidence, and instead blamed Jeff for murdering his wife. And naturally, even though he'd been cleared by investigators years before, they'd try to point the finger at him every step of the way. But that's not what the evidence led to. When he took the stand, the defense was relentless. It was very painful for him, but he knew he was innocent. The defense claimed that Jeff had motive to kill his wife. They said he was angry at Bobby Joe because the day before her murder, she had brought home cold pizza. I personally find this to be ridiculous. First of all, cold pizza is delicious. Second of all, the poor woman had to hitchhike everywhere. So if it took her longer to get home and the pizza got cold, surely Jeff would have been forgiving. The defense asked Jeff about his strange behavior, like when he told the investigators about the premonition he had about where and when he thought Annette's body would be found. His only explanation was the truth. He just had a feeling. But the defense argued that these were details that only the killer would know. As for that pesky DNA, the defense claimed the evidence had been tampered with, and mishandled throughout the years. But the bottom line was the blood on Bobby Joe's glove and on the tissue was Alan Phillips' blood. For the prosecution, there was a simple explanation. Alan Phillips was the one, the only one, who murdered both Bobby Joe and Annette. DNA testing conducted months before the trial revealed that Annette Schnee's DNA was on the inside and Bobby Joe's DNA was on the outside of that orange sock found on Hoosier Pass, not far from Bobby Joe's body. That meant that Bobby Joe had picked up that sock at some point, and it clearly tied both women to the sock. Therefore, Annette was also killed by Alan. In September 2022, the jury debated for four hours and 45 minutes before coming forward with a guilty verdict. He was guilty on eight charges, including two counts of first-degree murder, felony murder, and kidnapping. A little over seven weeks later, he was given two consecutive life sentences for the murders of both women. Alan Lee Phillips showed no emotion, but his daughter did. I'm sure that everyone in his family wanted to believe that he was innocent. Justice was served for Annette and Bobby Joe, but that might not be the end of Alan Phillips' story. Investigators believe that Alan has more victims— he was an aggressive, angry person, and he had come prepared to attack a woman the night he killed Bobby Joe and Annette. He had zip ties and a gun with him. 
and then after killing Annette, he wanted more, so he went after Bobby Joe. She fought back. Alan chose petite women, ones he thought he could easily overpower. Based on his actions, he was the type of man to reoffend. There is an open investigation into Alan Lee Phillips. If anyone has information about other possible victims who could be associated with him, they should reach out to the Colorado Park County Sheriff's tip line. I will put that phone number in the show description. As far as Alan Lee Phillips goes, he will not be confessing anything to police. He maintained his innocence until the day he died in prison, which was February 27th of this year, 2023, at the age of 72. This means he was only in jail for two years. There are many people who would have preferred that his SOS signal hadn't been seen and that his soul hadn't been saved on that snowy mountainside in 1982. I hope you enjoyed the 100th episode of Twisted Travel and True Crime. Please check out photos to go along with this case on either Instagram or Facebook. I'd like to give a huge thank you to everyone who interacts with me on those pages or on social media in general. I'd also like to thank everybody who writes and reviews about the podcast. And if you haven't done it yet, please subscribe. Finally, if you'd like to support the podcast financially, there are links in the show description that will allow you to contribute either monthly through Patreon or a subscription service, or you can donate just one time. That's also where you will find links to social media. It feels amazing to have reached 100 episodes. So to all of you who are still listening, thank you all so, so very much. I wish you all fair winds, following seas, and safe travels of all kinds.